Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Clough, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Welcome back to another episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. It's certainly been a time. Before I dive into this week's interview, which is oh so juicy, I need to first comment on the continued presence of white supremacist Asatru groups. If you watched footage of the coup at the United States Capitol, you likely saw some people wearing runes. There was, of course, the horrible North American Viking shaman guy. You know, the one with the headdress who was shirtless and had his face painted as a Confederate flag and had all of those tattoos. But there were many others. I have said again and again on this podcast that I condemn white supremacy. I understand the history of why Norse symbols in particular are constantly used. Listen to episode two to get a more in-depth history. I know that it's naive and even harmful to say that these people aren't pagan. Heathenry, like any other faith, has extremes. But from everything that I've learned from elders in the heathen community, what I see when I see white supremacists rallying under the banner of Asatru is that this is not rooted in our folk culture as Nordic Germanic peoples. I would argue that the Asatru Folk Assembly, the Wolves of Vinland, and other white supremacist Odinist groups that are are not approaching heathenry as a true faith, but rather they use heathenry as a quote-unquote religious institution. This allows them to recruit in places where they would otherwise not be able to. It is well known and documented that these hate groups recruit in prison and they are able to do that because of their religious tax status. So what can we do to interrupt the prison to Asatru Folk Assembly pipeline? Do prison inreach. If you are heathen and have a firm grounding in the faith, do the prison work necessary to provide an actual real education on heathenry to those who are seeking in incarcerated um, in prison. Build relationships with people who are incarcerated. I firmly believe that incarceration itself is inhumane and the entire prison system benefits off of white supremacy. So of course, that's where a lot of the recruiting happens. But this also means that a lot of people who are incarcerated are looking for healing or meaning or some kind of guidance and they're finding it in these white supremacist groups. I know a lot of heathens who are amazing, radical, uh, people who do prison and reach, and they all talk about how critical it is to view incarcerated people as people and how essential their work is. So get involved where you can. If you are not ready for that, another thing you can do is get loud. Talk about your faith as a Norse pagan loudly so that people understand that this path, the root culture and heathen ancestry, is not the same as what the Asatru Folk Assembly and others like them do. The best thing we can do is make the Asatru Folk Assembly irrelevant to those who might be seeking heathenry. I used to be ashamed to be a follower of Odin. I used to not want to talk about it because I didn't want people to think I was a white supremacist. 
But now I know that centering anti-white supremacy and anti-racism in my faith and what I talk about is the way people will actually know that I'm not a white supremacist. And actions are more important than words anyway. Don't just virtue signal, do the work. And if you're white and following a different pagan path, um, especially if you're following a European pagan path, you need to get loud too. I know that there's plenty of white supremacy in other European non-Norse pagan spaces, but it's not talked about as much. This is insidious whiteness. It is a whiteness that doesn't recognize how embedded racism is in our society. Do the work. And to my pagans of color, your path is valid. I see how hard you are working and just how much shit gets thrown your way. I want you to know that you are always welcome around my fire. And I also want you to know that it is, you know, not on you to do the anti-racist work um, in these spaces. You know, you should be able to practice your faith without feeling like you have to constantly educate others. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to say thank you for all of the work that you do. I'm working on a resource list on my website that is both groups to avoid because of overt white supremacy, like the Asatru Folk Assembly, as well as anti-racist heathen groups and initiatives to support. I wanted to have it up by the time this podcast episode aired, but I also started the second year of the Witchcraft Immersion on Sunday. I've also honestly been taking time to process and be emotional. It's been a week, let me tell you. If you would like to be notified when this resource list is up, please subscribe to my newsletter link in the show notes. And if you know of a heathen group that should be added to the list, um, whether that be a racist heathen group or a uh, welcoming and anti-racist heathen group, please reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram. So (laughs) on to a very awkward segue into highlighting my guest for the week. Marcus McCoy is an alchemist, herbalist, and blacksmith that you might know as Troll Cunning Forge. His career in the occult arts spans decades, and he is a wealth of knowledge in so many areas. This interview barely begins to scratch the surface of his knowledge. We talk about his interests in the materia magica, history, and alchemy, as well as what it means to be an actual practical alchemist, which is very different from what you might think. There are a lot of misconceptions about alchemy that come from both armchair ceremonial magicians as well as New Age people who took ideas of transformation and transmutation without learning the source material. Some of Marcus's frustration with this is very apparent in this episode, and I think it's very valid. New Age in particular tends to water down or appropriate a lot of much older traditions. We definitely see that with the boom in shamanism and entheogens. The New Age frame of mind also tends to look at spiritual practices to see how they can revolutionize those practices or bring them into a modern construct. But you can't revolutionize a practice, in my opinion, until you fully, deeply understand it, especially something that there is already a lot of misconception about. So this is where that frustration comes from so often with, you know, traditional witches, um, magicians, and alchemists. I will also note, before we get into the interview, that I had a hell of a time editing this episode, 
There were a lot of audio jumps and cutouts at the very beginning of the recording process, thanks to my internet cutting in and out and recording via Zoom. So his introduction to his work is a little bit choppy. Here's the cliff notes. Marcus studied anthropology in school, got connected with ideas of South American shamanism, studied under an actual shaman um, from... I, I believe it was Bolivia, um, for many years in the traditional pre-Ayahuasca fad way, and decided to follow other interests as well as shamanism out of a frustration with not being able to practice what he was originally taught. This led to his interest in perfumery and herbalism, which led to his uh, current partner introducing him to alchemy. Context is important, which is just why I wanted to you know, share that. I think that Marcus um, has been has a lot of influences that um, come through in his work and especially in this interview. And it's just so juicy to see all of that coming together. Anyway, I've blabbed on long enough. On to the episode. Hello, welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Good to be here. Um, so I have already given a little brief introduction of you and your work, but in your own words, how have you come to be the this like alchemical blacksmith? Um, wh- how did you get started in blacksmithing? Like, how did you get started in your magical pr- path? Like, just give us a little intro of yourself. Oh, well, if we were to start at the beginning, it's a pretty long story, so I'm not going to get into um, all the little details, but um, <clears throat> obsessed on um, the spirit world and being able to interact and, and see uh, the spirit world for for personal reasons um, at the time. And <clears throat> so I was really in- interested in that. And he turned me on to conversations with Olga Tomelli, um, which was looking at uh, anthropological interviewing for understanding a culture's metaphysic and uh, ontological systems. And that already that got me started with a really good foundation in, you know, uh, how to understand both my own and other cultures' uh, worldviews spiritually, magically, etc. So. We come from a scientific materialist culture uh, with uh, a dash of remaining Neoplatonism. So, you know, of course, I was going to be like all about that, you know, like, okay, you take a physical substance and that shows you the spirit world. Okay, right, right, because they're somehow linked, you know, and so I... I got really interested in that and then studying all the different cultures that worked with uh, plants that were visionary. Um, But... You know, I didn't grow up Bolivian. I didn't grow up Peruvian. Um, and so I studied all these things that were still kind of foreign to me. And those were like the ideas of folk magic that were like a given, you know. A lot of people still project and have brought like new age ideas, you know, of like personal extension and, you know, like, you know, what I think is really masturbatory self-perfection sort of spiritual path work. Um, their shadow work and all these things. And, and um, they bring that to, to the work with these plants and these animist cultures. And uh, 
that's not really how it's approached. You know, it's not about becoming this perfect being, you know, um, for the most part, you're, you're treating supernatural illnesses, um, whether that's caused by uh, a supernatural being or by a malevolent practitioner of magic or by the evil eye from a jealous uh, neighbor or something to, to that effect. And so it was those things, those things seemed to be the most common things that were being treated by these, you know, visionary plant shamans you know and and so i became very interested in that and then that of course led to an interest in in witchcraft uh and then a cross-cultural examination of witchcraft folk magic and the more i explored it the more i you know of course i was like finding tons of commonalities um and i was really interested in just like because that's really missing, you know, like you don't see it in the, the neo-pagan scene. I mean, there's, there's, and you just seriously don't see it in the, the uh, ritual magic, ceremonial magic lodges. There's an aversion to doing no magic, you know, in both communities, you know, um, and that is really telling uh, because they, they have a very new age and, uh, and also like a, a psychological development sort of like pathway, transpersonal psychology view uh, to very it. Very scientific. Yeah. You know, and, and union, you know, like almost, mm-hmm. but they, you know, there's an aversion to doing magic that isn't just the self-improvement sort of personal growth sort of thing. Um, unless it's healing or, or, you know, like in the neo-pagan standpoint, healing and protection and things like that, um, divination and, and things. But the you don't see people throwing hexes at each other uh, as much in that community, um, which I think has a lot to do. And I don't I don't I don't go off on this tangent too often, but I, I believe that that has a lot to do with the the privilege <laughs> of of the people that participate in those traditions is that they they don't need to see physical real world uh, results all the time um, and so it can be a very intellectual um, spiritual you know developmental uh, practice for them but <clears throat> I was very interested in that because you you don't see it you know it's not here and so I'm down in South America. I want to. I'm learning to 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 be a current Darrow for all purposes, but I want to. You know, there's no one coming to me for. Well, I've got. I you know the evil eyes on me. Yeah. Right. It'd be more like I want my aura cleansed, or I feel you know I feel like I need to do some shadow work. You know, or you know like things like that. You know, and 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 that that really started bothering me in that you couldn't really, there was very little crossover, but at the same time, I, culturally between the South America and North America and stuff. But then I was, I started studying, well, what other cultures, you know, so Hispanic culture in general throughout, you know, North America and Central America, they all still have those same commonalities, but so do so many other cultures. And so I started looking at all of these cultures uh, that still had, that still believed in curses and hexes and it's there's a lot 
you know, a lot of Americans still that, that do, but we, you know, they have a tendency to be pretty marginalized people um, and not these people of privilege. Um, and I also found that really interesting. You know, there's class divides with all of that as well. So here I am wanting, I've learned how to, to do this work, but I don't really have an opportunity to do it. So you, you get bored. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're like, all right, well, you know, I don't really have much to practice and I'm not going to be someone's psychological self-help guru with hallucinogens, you know, like, cause that just seems ridiculous and that's not what I learned to do. So, you know, that's what, a lot of people are seeking and that's what people have become to try to adapt to the needs of the Western audience. And that's what it is now largely down there. Um, except with the exception. And I know a lot of uh, Peruvian um, immigrants in the United States that are still practicing, not for Western, uh, but for other immigrants, you know, and uh, they do it the old fashioned, you know, like they're, they're healers. They, they are, doing what they do but a lot of people they just scoff at even that they just reject it because it's become so new agey so hippie so you know like far from its original context uh that people you know it's just a burning man joke at this point you know uh, so and one of the things that informed me was an you know a real interest in plants plant spirits um and that got me into distilling and perfume uh, because perfumerismo is a a sort of sub practice specialty of some curanderos uh, within those traditions. And um, you extract the volatile spirit of a plant, which is its soul, its sulfur, and you have that in a bottle and you work with it magically and so I became really obsessed with that because it was so effective and it was so interesting to me um so I started learning how to distill and I was really interested in distilling because I wanted to make my own uh from regional plants local plants and not uh sort of adapt what I had learned to working within a more bioregional uh standpoint so I started distilling I got really interested in perfume. I started uh, a small business doing distillations of local plants and selling them. And then I met my current partner, Katamara Rosarium, and she was she had a essential oil uh, and incense sort of witchcraft business. What, yeah, it's that? a funny story. I actually use her um, manifestation oil. Oh, cool. Like to this day. And I didn't realize until I think you had posted on Instagram or something recently about like kind of highlighting her work. And I was like, oh my God, those two. Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 When I, when I met her, she had gifted me that, uh, that particular oil and I turned it into a perfume and, you know, gave it back to her or part of it, you know, kept the rest and, showed her you know like the little things and we started working on perfumes together and things and that was that was a lot of fun um and then i started she had taken uh some courses with robert bartlett 
Um, so he was her teacher and she was telling me, you're an alchemist. And I'm like, sure. You know, like, okay. I mean, <laughs> mostly when you hear people talk about alchemy, you're hearing like this kind of union viewpoint on it. Um, people are pretty far removed from uh, lab alchemy. A lot of people don't even think it exists. I can't actually spend any time on uh, Facebook forums on alchemy because it's so full of rubbish. I, the, the, the actual denial of lab work and the misunderstandings that come from people that don't do any lab work and aren't trained to do any lab work are amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So I just, I just can't even, I, it just makes me angry. So I don't even, I don't even go there anymore. Um, but how did a lot of this kind of transfer to um, blacksmithing? Cause that's primarily well, like how I followed your work is through like your yeah. smithing. Yeah. So, so yeah, long story short, uh, I started taking classes with Robert as well. Um, and I think it was during Secunda that I started, uh, which is like the second tier of, of class or alchemical lab work uh, with, with Robert, that I also had taken a class with um, Cody Dickerson on making uh, a nail. And so I had blacksmith the nail cat had gotten this thing uh, or bought the class, paid for the class for us to take together. Just because she thought it'd be fun and uh, she wanted to support Cody. And so uh, we went and took the class and I did the, the, the nail and it just really clicked the, the, the act of blacksmithing really, really clicked for me. And I felt so good doing it sore at first first but very good it just seemed to, to suit me so I took another class and that was we were making uh, a hazelnut stank uh, and made the little chopper to cut it down with and stuff and um, it was during that in between classes I think it was like maybe a week or two in between that I had also taken the class with Robert again and it just sort of the idea, what we were studying at the time was how you, uh, because a lot of alchemy and well, alchemy and blacksmithing and shamans actually like all have the same, uh, they all come from the same nest and they, they arise together uh, in history from the same source. And with, you start to see that like when you're studying alchemy, like, Oh, metalwork, all this metalwork, you know, alchemy, <laughs> you know, like this is, it was all swimming, you know, together. And, and I started to, a lot of questions as to why people did what they did. And in, in these different occult traditions, like the grimoire blades, for example, that was a real obsession of mine for years. I mean, as you know, a more esoteric herbalist, I was really curious about herbal quenches and Daniel Schulke had talked about uh, herbal quenches and I think either Viridarium umbris or, or uh, the Aris Filtron and I had asked him if he could tell me more about that and he was like, you know, I wrote about all, my, all I, I know and if you learn more, let me, let me know, you tell me. And so 
Um, so that was really interesting. I was like, oh, well, I, I do. I really want to learn more about that. What is that all about? And I had kind of, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. taking the blacksmithing class. And then I was taking the alchemy class at the same time. And it all just kind of like clicked. And then I confirmed it with Robert that, uh, and it became the basis of the work that I do now, which is taking, and so I just became obsessed with the idea of like, well, this is how magical iron implements or steel implements were made. And we hear throughout history, I mean, we have, you know, fantasy novels and cartoons and all these things that have the magical swords and role-playing games and all this stuff. So, you know, we're, we're inundated with that. But you start looking at, like, throughout history, there's, like, magical knives and magical swords and all these things. And ritual magicians pay to have these things made or whatever. And witches all work with the athames and all this stuff. And you start looking at the history and researching the history and there was a way and it was through alchemy that these things were created and imbued with magical properties. And so I became sort of obsessed with that. Okay. So like a magical knife, a magical sword, anything that's made out of steel, like you can make, you can imbue with other properties utilizing alchemical philosophy and that is practiced through laboratory work, but the lab now becomes the forge, which the, the, the forge was also the place where alchemy was done. I mean, alchemists did a lot of metal work. I mean, we always hear about lead to gold, but they did so much more, so much more. I mean, I mean we just distilled oil of antimony, you know, like, I mean, working with mercury, working with the precious metals, I mean, all of the, the metals of the world can be, you know, or all the, the main planetary metals are traditionally turned into uh, uh, an alchemical oil, which is can be ingested or used topically or used in a sorceress sort of manner. And that became the other interest started for me to start looking at, you know, Daniel Schulke's Ars Filtron and, and things. He's studied alchemy and witchcraft and he's written about the subjects combined in his own sort of praxis. But you can start to see, you know, I started seeing where he was seeing, you know, like there's this, this, this link between alchemy and sorcery all throughout the, the ancient world and witchcraft that, that a lot of people, unless they've actually practiced some form of lab alchemy or, or understand it, would miss completely. And, I, and I, I find that with a lot of ceremonial magicians, as well as uh, people working with astrological uh, talismans and stuff, if they don't have like an actual background in doing lab alchemy, then it's just, it just, it's like the fish not recognizing that they're in water. <laughs> hey, you know, like, so, you know. yeah, so I have to admit that I actually know very little about alchemy. Um, which is part of why I was excited to talk to you um, so that I could learn alchemy from somebody who's like doing it in such a, or not learn alchemy, but like learn about alchemy and have a conversation about it from somebody mm -hmm. who is so steeped in kind of that practical alchemy. Mm -hmm. So, um, but what is alchemy to you? So like you talk about this sort of a fish, not realizing that they're in water, like, what, how do you bridge that kind of like knowledge gap almost? So like, what is alchemy? And then also like, what is practical alchemy? Well, I'll tell you what alchemy and practical alchemy is not. It's nothing new age and it's nothing what we would call pseudoscience 
today. And there's a lot of people out there that um, are trying to spearhead a sort of jailbroken alchemy, right? I'm trying to jailbreak alchemy, you know, make it more modern, make, you know, translate it all into transpersonal terms or new age consciousness, you know, like theory uh, concepts. And a lot of them aren't very well, even though they would say otherwise, they're not very well versed in uh, traditional Renaissance philosophy uh, or even astrology. Um, and I'm not going to say that I am extraordinarily well-versed because I know lots of people that are more well-versed on the subjects than I am. But I do know well enough to understand that alchemy has a really solid foundation and super, super solid foundation in Neoplatonism. But it also somewhat originated in uh, uh, Egypt. And so there's a, a lot of... Egyptian influence with it as well, um, and you know, and influence from the Middle East and things that that occurred. Alchemy sort of took a hiatus uh, in during the the medieval era and sort of wandered all over to to the Middle East a bit and started it sort of had a renaissance there, um, and so there was a lot of uh, influence from all over the world uh, during that time because the Middle East was such a, it's just an interesting hub. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of really awesome astrological magic and talismanic magic and things like that that got combined with it. Um, but anyway, back to your question, uh, is that what, you know, what does it mean to me? Um, to me, it's, it's, it's learning to understand the natural world and our place in it and how to grow within it um, in a way that's uh, ultimately healthy for you and the, and the world uh, around you. So immortality, you know, these things, you know, like led to gold, things like that. And then you, you hear the psychological standpoint. It's like, oh no, those were metaphors. No, I literally just saw my teacher turn copper into silver like last month like literally saw that so it's it's not metaphor <laughs> you know we looked under you know looked under a microscope and did different regions to test it and it was you know it was literal um and a lot of people will will think that i'm a, a crack for even saying that you know uh but i saw it it happened it's true. It's real. It's not metaphor for uh, the spiritual evolution, uh, though that is a part of it too. There is a spiritual evolutionary sort of uh, approach that happens, but it's not. It's not in the same lines as as what people think in terms of uh, uh, consciousness development. You know, from a transpersonal standpoint um, today. It's it's a little bit different. It's in that today. What we have today is informed by that, definitely. But it's changed quite a bit. We've 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 taken out of its original context, mixed other things with it, and really muddied the waters. Um, and so these ideas of immortality, uh, a lot of what alchemy was focused on was creating medicine, and you know, medicine prolongs life. So there's definitely a concept of immortality with that. And if you look at the, the alchemy was also used to preserve bodies, 
you know, um, and and mm. it was working in Egypt. It was working with different concepts of death than what we're accustomed to today. So these ideas of mortality sometimes I think get a little bit confused. Do I think you can literally become immortal? I know a lot of uh, alchemists that lie about their age to make mm. people think that they're immortal, but I don't really think that. I think it's really it's about health and uh, developing and if really prolonged life happens in the process well that's really fascinating you know um yeah it's kind of like what i'm getting the sense of is that like material is also holy you know like in a very real way and yeah you're 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 taking things to the 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 transmutation of of one thing to its other you can look at it like if you read uh Mircea Eliade's book, The Crucible and the Forge, which is really great because it talks about the relationship between uh, alchemy and blacksmithing and metal workers and stuff throughout history and, and cross-culturally. Now, granted, Eliade is considered somewhat of a armchair uh, anthropologist uh, scholar, but he still makes some really great points as a classical scholar looking at these things. And... Uh, the way it was viewed was that the, these different metals, you know, start with, I think, what is it? I think it's lead, but they go through a gestation period. They were considered like the bones of a God that <clears throat> were the bones of the earth that sacrifice itself to make this planet. Right. And these, these bones of this deity go through the just gestation period in the womb of the earth and they slowly become the other elements over time over thousands of years they become you know like lead will eventually all these you know mercury silver iron uh and so forth tin and then eventually you know like gold so and not in that order but <laughs> it gets it, the, the the perfection is gold and so it, it, that gold becomes the the perfect state and it's it's the full evolution and so so the philosopher's stone and these ideas of gold this spans alchemical culture actually and there is alchemical there are alchemical cultures there's a, a alchemy in india and alchemy in china as well and I was actually going to ask you about that because as you were talking about alchemy in the Middle East, I, I know one of the small slivers that I know is that Chinese alchemy looks very different. Very similar too. And so is, yeah. uh, so is Indian uh, from India, you know, like Indian alchemy is, is also very similar. They, they utilize a lot of the same laboratory techniques and they talk about a lot of the same things because they're working with the same stuff. We're, we're, we're literally working with nature through observing nature to help nature move along to, to evolve to it's, it's, it's uh, there is a, a hierarchical sort of like viewpoint of it, like a higher state um, that they're, they're, they're helping things move to. So a lot of times with like a spagyric alchemy, we're helping something get to its, it's re removing things from its growth, gross state, and then moving it onto that, uh, to the, the higher state. But you can also take things, and this is where you get into like compounding medicine and things. You still see this in all the cultures that have these advanced compounding medicine traditions uh, that are still very alchemical in their roots. 
is that you can take different elements, whether it's mineral, animal, or vegetal, and then combine different elements of each together to take their properties and virtues to make them do certain things. And so that's the same approach that I take to blacksmithing uh, magical implements because that's the way that they approach making magical implements. That's how it was done. <laughs> that's a good, <laughs> that's a great segue into um, kind of some of my uh, questions about blacksmithing specifically. What are some of your favorite materials to work with? Like what, what do you love to kind of produce through Troll Cunning Forge? I really enjoy working with San Mai. I think it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Damascus is also really fun to work with. And there's some really beautiful, uh, really talented Damascus makers out there. There's a guy that uh, I'm, I've been getting billets of Damascus from. He makes this, it's a Japanese, it's kumai, which is like a, it's like a copper, uh, which is like a type of what we, we call Damascus now, which is really just pattern welding. But it's pattern welded nickel and copper, and it makes beautiful Damascus patterns that we're familiar with with Damascus, but it's copper and nickel, so it's really a, a beautiful contrast. But then that is welded, forge welded onto steel, and then he does a sand my sandwich with that (laughs) it's just it's it's insane it's it's really really cool um from a an an, a cultural standpoint and say you know like uh throughout japan perhaps that's probably acceptable but in like the the western if you were to read like a grippa grippa would be like oh my god you're mixing copper and iron that's terrible you know like they're they're enemies you know and and uh, <laughs> if you if you start to to look at some of the, the stuff from agrippa you start to to see like there's all these all this folklore on metal that's really fascinating um copper's fun i like working with copper uh it, it has its own challenges i just really i like working with mild steel the most it's the most fun for me and I've been if I had more space and there was more of a community of uh, blacksmiths more local to me that I could be learning more architectural oriented stuff I'd probably get really into that because it's it's such an, a beautiful and amazingly challenging practice making like large architectural doorways and gateways and, and, and things like that fences and, and uh, more architect you know uh, 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 candelabras and things like that you know yeah. that you see in like big lodges and stuff like to me that's just like wow. <laughs> that's the doorways incredible. The, with the doorways I'm envisioning like all of the kind of like threshold magic that you could that's like, yeah, yeah I mean and you can do that you know like I think the besides the crazy alchemists and magicians that were doing things, you know, blacksmiths did have, you know, their beliefs as well. And they were considered sorcerers, but after a certain time, I think that became, it became just more of a trade. Um, And you see it today. There's, you know, blacksmiths can be a pretty superstitious bunch, but there's a lot that, that are just hardcore atheists and scientific materialists. And I think all of what I do is rubbish, which, you know, if I was to be in their worldview, I'd probably think it was rubbish too. 
but let's let's move beyond if we go beyond superstition we look at it as philosophy actually they were working within a philosophical standpoint which in alchemy is what we do as well right we do scientific things we do what we call today chemistry and chemistry originated from that but just like with blacksmithing it's philosophical there's a philosophy behind it so if you start looking at european folklore and magic uh throughout northern europe you start seeing a lot of especially in germany where that whole ginger hair and urine for blacksmithing things sort of originated from and you start to recognize oh they did a lot of stuff with the gingers they were all about it yeah and so they were a little ginger obsessed a little they had their kind of a ginger kink going on but you start seeing these patterns of like oh well there was a logic you know there's all this stuff that they believe you know about gingers and so then you approach that with the blacksmith and you're like i see okay so they really they saw that there was you know like the fire god or like there's this 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 divine power within you know that you know within the the ginger that it's it uh cured epilepsy that's one of the beliefs right the other ones that would make steel hard. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And so they would, they would use these dif- different, you know, uh, beliefs and, and there was a philosophy that was going along with it and trying to unpack that philosophy as from a modern standpoint, you know, it, it's easy for people to say, Oh, well, it's because of the energy. Right. You know, it's the, the vibration of redheads that makes mm. it possible it, yeah so i mean you know that it, makes less sense to tr- me <laughs> right but people do that on a regular basis you know what is the the thing you know like um chocolate is a uh, a higher octave of avocado uh right well so on that note um we're gonna take a quick sponsor break okay and we'll be right back Welcome to the Swamp Witches. Swamp Witch Stephanie is an online magical herbal apothecary for all your darkest desires. Swamp Witch Stephanie started in 2018 with a line of anointing oils enchanted by the Swamp Queen herself. Stephanie has been studying the Western occult tradition, American folklore, British and American traditional witchcraft, and historical herbalism for over 10 years, and has brought her knowledge and expertise to each of these handcrafted all-natural oils. And this year, Swamp Witch Stephanie has launched a new line of ensorcelled skincare products. And she would know. Being the drag persona of Marcus Ironwood, Stephanie knows the importance of keeping your skin soft as a babe's bottom. Stephanie is ready to share her magic with Heathen's Journey listeners with 20% off your order at swampwitchstephanie.com. Just use the offer code HEATHEN for your discount. Keep it swampy. Have you heard of the Troll Club? It's the best club around. Put together by Needfire Wellness, it's a customer club for new witches and seasoned practitioners alike. It is a resource to meet like-minded folks with a focus on magic. 
For $10 a month, members get access to monthly scheduled Zoom meetings and discussion with Q&A with Minta Carlson, 15% off all physical products and 20% off all e-learning classes by Needfire Academy, a special Discord server, exclusive monthly giveaways and contests, and a monthly gift. You will also have access to early product releases. So you can just go on over to their website, which is needfirewellness.com, and go to Troll Club to sign up. This will be a great addition to your uh, rotating supplies and other magical needs purchasing. And be sure to tell them that Siri from the Northern from Northern Lights Witch and the Heathen's Journey podcast sent you. All right, see you in the club. So one of my questions, um, and for all of the uh, heathens who are listening to this, they might be like, oh, I thought I was listening to a heathen podcast. Why are we talking about alchemy? (laughs) Um, But I think that your approach is really interesting because it is grounded in kind of like Germanic and Northern European um, study in a certain way. I mean, you're the troll cunning forge, right? So you've been you have experience in that way. Um, one of the things that I find really interesting about your work as well is that you're taking these like concepts of like high ceremonial magic, or at least I think a lot of people who don't know very much about alchemy would consider alchemy to be high magic, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, but then you're also mixing it with that folklore um, folk magic, which is often called or considered low magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually, well, I mean, alchemy is always informing the, the folk magic traditions as well. You know, I mean, trickle down information. We see it today with the new age stuff, you know, like they keep, I mean, with quantum physics, for example, people are always like, well, quantum physics say that this magic is possible because of blah, 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 blah. So, right. You know, <laughs> I mean that that same thing that hasn't ch- it hasn't changed that was still happening you know like back then so excuse me I'm drinking cider it's making me belchy so the, That's okay the, uh, I mean that was happening then so people were were informed information did trickle down to people grimoires were usually written by you know like in in Norse if you want to get really Norse we could talk about the black book traditions and so the black book traditions were oftentimes, you know, there were books. So they were, you know, documentation of literate people. And a lot of the times the people that were literate were clergy. And it was also believed that uh, you had to be clergy in order to have a black book because that was the only way that you could control the supernatural powers of of diabolical you know like (laughs) hell there arose from them and uh and so like i mean there's i mean the way they viewed these books was really amazing because they they were literally like their stories of like you know one trolldom practitioner he was you know like he was a, a, a priest i believe and he had his book and uh if Johannes is reading this, he's probably that's not the way the story goes. And you know, but the 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 
he was carrying the book and, and or there was like an exorcism or something had to be done. The demon was was present and or and he sent his student to go get the book. He forgot the book at home, and so he bring you know goes back and he 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 trips and drops the book and all these evil spirits start flying out of the book like he had just like uncorked a bottle right i mean the way that they saw these books was insane you know like agrippa's books in some parts of europe uh throughout history were actually kept in in a locked room and chained they were chained mm. up so that the, the evil couldn't escape uh the book you know like so they had different they had different views of 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 books back then books were considered insanely supernaturally power the written word are i mean if you look at how modern heathens view runes and the power of runes well i mean the written word itself you know i mean it's an alphabet you know it's it's mixed words and those have power and if you look at exactly. folk magic philosophy you know, like the, the words have a great deal of power. And so books have a great deal of power. It wasn't a huge jump. And uh, for, you know, Scandinavians to, to, to fetishize or put so much importance onto the black books um, and the things that were written inside of them. Oh, um, I was just going to say, you know, we have in Minnesota here, we have one of the largest collections of black books like outside of that's awesome. Scandinavia. Like that's they've great. actually been. Have you got a yeah. chance to look at them at all? Or, yeah. Uh, no, because I found out about this after COVID had happened. Oh. Mm. So I haven't had a chance to take a road trip and like look through them, but um, yeah, they're in like a neighboring, um, a neighboring city to mine. Um, awesome. And it was just, you know, like immigrants basically whose yeah. families had somehow taken the family black book with them overseas and it was like put in an attic somewhere and then they opened it and it's like oh i guess grandma was doing some demonology or something well <laughs> a, lot of these, is. a lot of these black books it wasn't i mean well for one yeah if grandma had it it was probably demonology because women according to mm -hmm. scandinavian belief <laughs> You had to be a priest, and women couldn't be priests. So if a woman had a black book, that means she was a witch. She was doing witchcraft with it because, you know, it goes with the territory. Women are inherently evil um, throughout European history, as we've, we've learned. Um, but uh, I, I don't actually believe that, but history says that. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but that was the way it was approached is that, you know, like folk healers oftentimes, yeah, if a woman was a folk healer, um, she would get, you know, in trouble if she had a book, uh, on, on magic. But a lot of these things were like, if you look at like, uh, petite Albert, have you seen that grimoire at all? I haven't. No. Uh, if you look at some of these other, uh, more in some of the, the Spanish ones that have been translated, uh, the books of St. Cyprian, which also is another recurring theme in, in the Scandinavian ones as well. You start to see that there's, there's a, a recurring theme of, it's almost like an almanac. Mm -hmm. These, these, these black books, they were handwritten, uh, uh, copied, uh, more information was put in like a journal, you know, it's the grimoire tradition, you know, like as we think of it today, but of the, of the folk 
people, you know, the common people, the people, you know. And so what was so interesting is that, you know, this is like, you know, a lot of it was their answer to by not having Viagra, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of boner spells and remedies and things like that to get, you know, you know, and uh, um, how to, to get your wife, how to meet your wife or, or your husband, you know, that was another really common thing that you see in these. And just across Europe, you see that over and over again in these, in whatever cultures, books that they had, they documented that, but also how to get rid of a toothache. And a lot of these things were practical as well as magical, but there was no crossover, mm. right? Like we, because the crossover didn't exist. There was no divide. Right. And that's the thing that people take for granted, like, oh, these are magic books. And I was like, well, an almanac would be considered a magic book. You know, like the Foxfire books today would be like, well, it's got some stories in it, but it's also got some some, some magic, you know, like, because it tells you how to do this and that and the other. But when we don't, certain things couldn't be, we didn't explain things via the scientific, you know, materialistic standpoint, you know, like that, this idea of science is still relatively new to the human experience as a way of like explaining the world around us. And so how did they explain these things, you know, back then? Well, I think that's really the most interesting and intriguing thing to look at, you know, like, you know, the spells for getting rid of a hernia on a baby. That was that a spell? Was that a magical spell? Or was that just a remedy? It's magic to us. It's definitely magic to us, but there was a logic behind it. Like equals like the fundamentals of, of what we call folk magic today, you know, like contagion, you know, like all these laws of contagion, sympathy, you know, like sympathetic magic, all these things. This was just common sense. This is through the observation of nature, like equals like, you know, like opposites attract things like this. You know, we observe these things and we witness it and it's not, it's not more complicated than that oftentimes. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, I'm even thinking about, so I've done a little bit of herbalism training and, um, you know, like from a traditional, like Western herbalism standpoint, you have sympathetic magic all over. Like if this like yeah. plant kind of looks like an ear, like then it's probably yeah, doctrine helpful. signatures. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's probably helpful in some kind of like, healing of the ear or hearing or something um so what that's a cross-cultural human phenomena throughout history we all do that all of us have done that and it's the way of understanding the language of the world and we've all paid attention to it and you know like throughout history i think until now and now we have specialists that do it in a very special mathematical manner that you know, if it doesn't work within those the, the precepts or their imagination as to how things should work, then you know it can't be validated. Then it's not true. But right. I think that, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I think that um, there's an interesting thing that I've been you know thinking about, and also like it's coming up in our conversation too, is that um, this like idea that high magic is somehow separate from like folk culture is just kind of ludicrous because the people who are practicing and developing high magic were a part of their folk cultures. Like they just were. So like the folk culture of 
you know, the uh, German or Swedish or Greek magician, you know, informs their worldview. And then that's kind of like how, you know, like how it springs. So it's really, the more I think about it, the more like these distinctions between high and low magic don't really make that much sense to me. Because they're always yeah, I mean, informing each other. Yeah, if you look at some of these grimoires, I mean, within these grimoires, there's uh, solid chunks from, you know, bits and pieces of the Book of Solomon. Um, we had people that were doing what, you know, people call ceremonial um, in their own way. And they had little chunks of, of different grimoires, you know, that people look at for their, their high magic stuff today. So these folk magicians that were doing low magic, <laughs> which I just, we could just throw that out. You know, the high magic, low magic thing to me is, is it's a pretty classist idea, you know, and once again, oh. it comes from a complete stance of, of, of privilege, you know, like you have these, I mean, if you look at it, God, was it Agrippa? I can't remember who, but there is these, Eric Perdue my one of my best friends. He, he's a translator of Agrippa and he's pointed out several times that, you know, there is these standards for what you had to have in your life and life experiences to be magician you had to be pretty much independently wealthy you had to have like served in the military for some time you had to have like your own manor house and servants and all these different things you you know it just the list went on and on and on and on and on and on and those were the prerequisites you needed to have those things in order to be a magician and that's you know it's just ridiculous <laughs> you know right like, and i don't even know and the results the results of a lot of what these guys were trying to do with their high magic a lot of times just like what well, all right you know treasure finding you know like divination <laughs> really these guys had just really oftentimes and still today they they delude themselves into thinking that it has to be as complicated and difficult and challenging as possible in order for it to be effective or to even work in the first place yeah, I, you know, in my experience, and from studying magic from a cross-cultural standpoint, and historically, that's inaccurate. Very yeah. inaccurate. So, and off, honestly, like the folk magicians who were, you know, seeing clients and treating people, you know, the cunning folk or the troll cunning or whatever tradition they're coming from, like. They had such a, they had and have such an intense variety of like experiences of like kinds of magic that they were doing. Whereas like a high ceremonial magician, I would almost think like wouldn't have that same diversity and skill set. No, not magically because they had too many limitations. I mean, you'll spend like people spend like years trying to meet their, their guardian angel, you know, like their own personal right. guardian angel, you know, like it's, it's absurd to me. Um, personally, I think it's, it's a lot easier than they, they think it is, but, and, you know, <laughs> work with some of these Peruvian shamans, you know, you'll, you'll see that that's true, um, that it is a lot easier, but it, it, it takes more intensive work in some ways, I think. Um, Totally. But regardless of that, I think that, you know, you see these people doing quote unquote high magic, though I really, 
don't talk about this subject very often because I find it highly obnoxious. But the, and the <laughs> but the but the 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 people that do it, you know, they're they're you know petitioning uh, spirits, uh, either divine or infernal, um, a lot of times in order to accomplish specific things, um, and it seems a lot of the, the results are psychologized um, that they're, what they're seeking uh, or, and or rationalized as being psychologized in an altered state of consciousness or what have you, you know, like you're not literally flying this demon that gives you the gift of flying. It's not really flying. It's an altered state of consciousness where you're actually uh, having the experience or more like a creative visualization of a clairvoyant flight. Mm. It's not literal these primitive people that we are obsessed about studying their magic of, uh, they viewed it as literal, but we're smarter than them though. We're obsessed with them and what they knew. Right. Yeah. So there's so many contradictions to me, but, but at the same time, you st- you look at the, 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 the humble practitioners, you know, working in the village, you know, doing what they did, they interacted with all manner of supernatural entity to accomplish whatever they needed to at the time or didn't, <laughs> or spent all their time trying not to, you know, like, right. or being an intermediary once again, you know, between the supernatural world and and the physical world, uh, you know, to solve problems. So, um, yeah. So I think uh, we probably don't have much more time to uh, talk. Um, So if there are any listeners who are interested in learning more alchemy for themselves and or like more kind of this folk magic and practical alchemy aspect of it, where should they look? I would say um, you should, if you are interested in alchemy, you should take uh, Robert Bartlett's course, um, uh, Prima and then Secunda and then Tertia. Um, it's three different courses. Um, he has them recorded, which really is only a substitute. It's not a substitute actually for being there and taking the classes. Each class is different. You're going to learn so much more every time. Um, he is a treasure trove of information uh, and knowledge. Um, but the the hands-on experience of actually doing the lab work is extremely valuable. Uh, I could take all of those classes over and over again and learn new things um, every time. So I highly recommend that Robert Bartlett, he wrote the book, uh, several books. He has a new one that has been released uh, on the humors um, by Revelor press. Uh, That was absolutely, it's really fascinating uh, doing destructive distillations to, to discover what the four humors of a, of a thing is. Um, he spoke at our conference, the British Genie Symposium, uh, on the subject one year, and it absolutely blew my mind. Um, really incredible work. He's a genius. He's a great guy. I love him. He's my alchemy teacher, my maestro, um, and I love that guy. Uh, if you want to learn about uh, the synergy of sorcery and um, alchemy, like... So the folk magic and witchcraft aspects of it, I highly recommend uh, finding a copy of uh, the Viridarium Umbris, as well as Ars Filtron by uh, Daniel Schulke. 
Um, that's a three hands press or Zoannan uh, release. Uh, those books are extremely expensive now um, and hard to come by. So uh, you'll probably only be able to nail like a PDF or something like that um, of them, which won't give you all the information a lot of times but most of it but that'll give you some somewhat of a, an idea of, of where sorcery and folk magic and witchcraft uh synergized with um alchemy but that's really his own praxis that's that's shulky's praxis which is great but that's not the end-all be-all and so it shouldn't be fetishized as being the end all be all or the ultimate or, you know, the, the best even it, it, it's his, you know, and, and what he's learned from his teachers, you know, as well. Then I would say um, to get a really good understanding of, of uh, folk magic, I would study or, or read Trolldom by Johannes Garsbeck and, and, and actually, you know, he's, he's teaching classes. And so I would, I would pursue uh, his courses and study with him. I've learned a lot from him over the years. Uh, consider him a friend, and he's a. Uh, uh, hopefully, we'll get him to speak at the British GNI Symposium uh, in the future. That would be great. I know he's working on some interesting new stuff too. But yeah, he's got a really great grasp. Um, and I would also, you know, seek out old people. <laughs> that still know some of this stuff. And um, I would also, if you want to understand American folk magic more, uh, Professor Porterfield is a treasure trove of information on that subject. Uh, We're in America. If you're an American, you were born here, you live here, you're an American. And no matter where your ancestors were, were from or where they were born, you're an American and you're from here. No matter what your heritage is, you can explore all that stuff as much as you want. That's great. But you're still an American. And and Americans have a history for hundreds of years that's also valuable. And there's a lot of things that people have learned in America uh, and have adapted to being an American that's really interesting (laughs) and shouldn't be ignored. And so American folk magic is really fascinating and has a very fascinating history. And the Scandinavian uh, folk magic, there's a really good book. I think you probably know it uh, on, um, uh, I think it was focused around Minnesota, but it was Scandinavian folk healers and, and uh, immigration to North America. Uh, I can't remember what the name, I think it might've just been called folk healer or folk medicine or, or. Um, I know of one called rituals and remedies. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's a great book on the subject. Um, that was that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one as well. You know, just, just to see, you know, where that, uh, that was going. I would also check out uh, for more Scandinavian folk magic stuff. Uh, Revelor Press has also re- released a extremely large black book, and so I think oh. that it's got a lot of information in it. Um, I will absolutely butcher the name, um, but I would go to Revelor Press and look at their website and, and look up their black book. Uh, it's got a lot of really great information, a lot of shotgun magic and mm. a lot of magic for making people poop. Which is yeah. Good, good stuff to know. Sounds, 
sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Scandinavians really love their poop curses, <laughs> and 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 cursing people's shotguns. We were. I I like to think, as someone with Swedish heritage, we were probably pretty good at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, All right, Marcus. So my last question for you is um, what are you working on right now that you're excited about? What can people kind of, you know, look forward to coming from you in the future? Obviously I encourage everybody to follow Trolls Hunting Forge. Um, I have been personally coveting some knives uh, for a long time, but just trying to, Get I've got a new series together. of knives coming uh, soon. Um, <clears throat> I've got the designs uh, made and very excited about releasing them. Uh, they're going to be somewhat based upon what I've been producing, the affamates that I've been making, uh, but they're going to be working with a particular type of steel that um, uh, turns black, really nice black. And so they're going to be a black Ooh. blade with a black handle. So that'll be a lot of fun. And then, uh, so that's one of the things I'm really excited about um, that's coming up um, that I'll be releasing within the next, this winter. Then this Monday, I'm actually going to be doing a limited uh, batch of Algol uh, blades, which is working from talismanic magic uh, with fixed stars, and so it's still working with alchemical philosophy. So instead of locking these principles of the, or the, the intelligence of the star within a, a, a talisman like this one, which is an algal talisman, we'll be locking it within a blade. And so we'll also have the um, working with a particular method that, uh, a grip I talked about with my friend Eric Perdue, where you find the the name of the ruling spirits and sigils of the ruling spirits at the time. So we'll have that information available to the buyers so that they'll be able to command and commune with the spirits and have their name and the sigil, which is how you command and commune spirits yeah. uh, traditionally. And <clears throat> so we'll have these alcohol talisman daggers that we're, we'll be producing and releasing. Uh, but it has to be done during on Monday during a, a specific astrological time that's called an election. And, and what that does is that it crystallizes that those forces, those astrological forces that happen at that moment uh, where Algol has got its most influential power during the, that day into the steel. And so mm. Algol will be in there. Now, the exciting thing is that we're, we're actually using uh, Robert Bartlett's oil of diamond. Ooh. So this is diamond oil. This is an oil made from diamonds, right? And uh, uh, black hellbore in the quench. So the properties of, which is what are traditionally used in algal talismans. So this will be, literally an algal talisman with those virtues of diamond and hellbore infused within the steel so that the, the algal planetary or astro fixed star intelligence will be more at home basically. 
So how much information do you kind of like include with your orders about this stuff? Because you're like a wealth of knowledge on this. Um, And I also imagine that if somebody is kind of an unsuspecting knife buyer Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they they get something that is, um, you know, like the the imbued with the spirit, um, they might want a few pointers on it uh so what what do you include i don't include any information actually. really and i'm actually a lot of people do a lot of people include a lot of information and that's a double-bladed sword so to speak in that um in the not too distant past the law really cracked down on people that were selling magical things because mm. they made a lot of claims and we're probably headed that direction again because people are assholes, both the consumers and the sellers. And so both are exploiting each other because the mm. buyer will, the buyer right now is trying to circumvent a t- teacher by getting buying magic from a supplier and the suppliers recognize this and they set themselves up as gurus that can Mm. give you this magical thing that can do these magical things for you and change your life and you know they may not make claims but it's the way that they don't make claims that makes a claim Right. And there's a lot of that going on. And that was that was illegal and it still is illegal. (laughs) But people are doing it anyway. People are still doing it and they're exploiting each other. And there are people that are in this industry just to exploit people and to con people. And there Mm. are tasks, task force that that, that do that for psychic reading and stuff. And it's just a matter of time before they start doing it for magical products. Again, in history, they did it in the past and they'll do it again. Mm -hmm. You know, so to avoid that, I I don't, I, I, I respect the practitioner and becoming an informed buyer and I can uh, direct people if they ask me personally, like where they can find information, but I don't provide that information because the, the people that are selling things and providing all the information on how to use it and what to do with it and stuff like that. God bless some of them because I think that they have their, their hearts in the right place and they have the best intentions. I really do. But I think that it's a slippery slope and that the route that a lot of people are going because the esoteric marketplace has become vast right now. Mm-hmm. It's a huge market, huge, way larger than it was when I first started. And it's, we're all going to, it's going to end in tears. <laughs> Yeah. You know, that's so interesting that you bring that up because I hadn't like quite put that together, but I actually, um, so I, I do tarot readings and room readings as like a part of my business, um, if you will, but I can't actually accept any, um, payments via like Stripe online because they crack down on, um, psychic readings and stuff. And so I actually, it's actually in a lot of city ordinances that psychic readings are against the law. Yeah. They don't enforce it like they used to, but I mean, I mean, if there's a fictional show called shut eye, Mm. right. I think it's on Hulu or, or something like that, but 
people should watch that because it's actually it's a look at uh, magic fraud that mm-hmm. has existed for a really long time and still continues to exist. This is, there's there's actually reputable companies that are still practicing magic fraud to this day. <laughs> reputable, but you know, like <laughs> right. it, it's it, they exist and they're out there. Um, but the the cons, those particular cons, are very much used by people. You know, like uh, cold readers, things like that. And so to protect the populace, they just consider all of us frauds. You know. And we're going to be in that category we're getting, with the popularity and the way people are being so brazen with the way that we approach uh, uh, the psychic and spiritual marketplace. We're on our way to getting that enforced again. I guarantee it. I guarantee yeah. it. No, that makes sense. I mean, I've already seen it a little bit. Personally. So I think a way to, to avoid that from happening, um, encourage people, empower people to, to find teachers uh, encourage and empower teachers to be teachers that haven't mm-hmm. become a teacher yet, but have it within them to be a teacher. Um, be questionable or, you know, be critical of people that uh, just because they're an author doesn't mean they know anything. <laughs> just mm-hmm. because they wrote a book doesn't mean they know shit. <laughs> right. And, you know, yeah. because there are some trash books out there, man. And, um, question what someone's motivation is for selling you the stuff that they sell and teaching what they teach. Yeah. I think that's huge. Like questioning what they're, what, you know, try to figure out what their motives are. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Well, um, again, thank you so, so much for sharing your stream of consciousness and ideas with the listeners. Um, I am excited to talk to you again. Um, in the yeah, likewise. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed the, yeah. the interview. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, All right. I will talk to you later. Okay. Have um, a good night. Yeah, you too. Bye bye. And that is it for today's episode of the Heathen's Journey podcast. A huge thank you and shout out to all of my students and patrons for making this work available. If you want to become a patron and support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash northernlightswitch. I post full moon and new moon ritual guides, rune readings for each of the turning of the zodiac season, and so much more. If you would like to follow me in between episodes, you can find me on Instagram at northern.lights.witch or on Twitter at northlightwitch. Until next time, stay weird.